Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. HR systems and how they shape culture. That's the topic of today's discussion. This is part three in a five-part series looking at culture. First episode was around what culture is and why it matters. And then we've been breaking down what shapes culture. So in the last episode, episode two, we talked about mission and philosophy, how that shapes culture, as well as the structures, who's involved in decision-making internally, and how those send messages about how people are expected to behave. On today's episode, I'm joined by David Byram, aka DB. Good afternoon, Dom. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. Fantastic. Thanks for joining me today. So HR systems, what are they? How do they shape culture? Great question. Right into it. Well, this is a broad group of causal factors we look at, more levers for change that are shaping, creating this culture to thrive or survive. So we break it down. Let's start holistically. And first thing we're going to look at is the human resource management structures. Uh So the policies, procedures, practices Uh we have around that human resource management. We'll then delve into a little bit more detail around appraisal and reinforcement practices that we have in the organization. And we'll close out today's podcast on around goal setting and what are the procedures, practices we have in the organization for setting goals. So first one you mentioned there was selection and placement. So what's that all about? Yeah. So selection and placement actually falls in the human resource management area. Mm-hmm. So now we're actually looking at, so what are the procedures and policies, practices we have to match people with uh, the job and the needs we have in the organization that are based on objective measures. Some would say clear, rational measures mm. versus measures that are somewhat subjective and political. So we're now seeking views of members to why people get the jobs they get. Mm. So are you hiring people who will fit in and can do the job and are comfortable with the job? So are we hiring the best person for the job? Mm. Or are we giving the job to someone based on connections and network and maybe not necessarily the best person for the job? So in line with that, are we matching the skills for the role with the person and the skills that they have? If we're actually looking at promotion, are we uh, promoting people into new roles based on skills and future school fit rather than uh, necessarily just current practices? So we're looking at the broad objectives not being subjective. Does it also play in there? So I've been in companies where someone who is not living up to the supposed values or you know ideal culture that we're going for, suddenly they get a promotion and sort of everyone's looking sideways saying, you know, what, what's that all about? We're told to do this and that person does the opposite, but they're the one actually getting promoted. 100%. What we see is that in some organizations, we espouse values of cooperation, collaboration, supporting, we want to nurture people, develop people, grow people. But the individual who is successful in getting a promotion is the individual who doesn't collaborate, doesn't support, Mm. doesn't grow, operates as an individualist. And that would be an example where we're promoting more on subjective political Mm. rather than objective rational, or we're not aligning to what we say we are, what we say we want to be. And so that I think, you know, happens quite a bit with those kind of jobs. Everyone's looking, right? Well, why did that person get promoted? Why not me or why not this other person and so on? And I've seen a lot of examples where 
particularly, you know, that case of the person who's leaving the wake of bodies at the door kind of thing is getting promoted. And so is that how it's forming culture? Because I'm looking at that and I'm saying, well, obviously to get ahead in this organization, I have to do the same thing. So despite what they say about teamwork, despite what they say about collaboration, actually what gets rewarded or what gets promoted is, you know, the ruthless kind of (laughs) move or whatever it may be. Well, correct, Dom. And what that's going to promote is a mixture of that competitive and power-orientated styles in that aggressive defensive cluster we spoke about. So if the people who are seen to get the bigger promotions, the next level job, are those that are not sharing, not growing, not collaborating, how do I succeed? How do I thrive within this organization? It's to stand out and compete. So inherently, I haven't been told to stand out and compete. I've been told to collaborate and share, but I'm seeing that to get a promotion, I've got to compete. So therefore, I probably start to compete or leave the organization. Yeah, right. The flip could also be true because what is driving is this security orientation. So I see that those that get along potentially go to the lunches, fit in with the in crowd, right. do the agreement, are getting the promotions. Anyone who rocks the boat. Anyone who's rocking the boat, probably not. So therefore, mm. I'm going to drive more of that conventional, dependent, passive type culture. Mm-hmm. The more I can fit in, the more I might be promoted. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so that's selection and placement. Yep. So selection and placement is the first one. Closely linked to that, the next one we look at would be training and development. Okay. So when we look at training and development, so this is for new and existing employees. A lot of organizations have great systems for onboarding new talent into their organization. But what I would say is this is also relevant. And for existing employees, how are they being developed? How are they being grown so they can move into new positions? And they understand how their position contributes to the broader organization. Mm. They can continue to challenge themselves. So where do they go post their orientation training? So what's the structures? How can they grow? When people, part of this training and development is also when I see people struggling and they're not living up to their full potential, they're not bringing their best selves to work. How do we go about developing them? How do we go about supporting them? Uh. Do we do nothing and let them potentially flounder and or I just come in and give them more direction and tell them what they need to do? Uh. Or do I come in from a control lens and expect them to stand up, compete, it's like fit in or uh, move on? And so that, Letting them flounder kind of angle, I guess, is going towards a, well, it could actually be either kind of culture, I guess, either aggressive or passive. Still security orientated. Yeah. Yeah. And where it's going to dominate our. One of the key things for me around training development is as an organization and as leaders, do we inherently show interest in the growth of people? And one of the things about constructive and sometimes people go, but, and then I pause them and say, well, you're probably not in that constructive mindset is that a constructive organization will develop its people and their people will fly and their people will flourish. And that means that for some of these people, they will leave the organization to bigger, better roles Mm. and they're making a bigger and better impact across. Now, the key, and this links back into some of the earlier causal factors around service focus is, do we stay in touch with those past employees, the organization that fly? Because from a constructive lens of, humanistic, encouraging, and being curious, my word for 2018, is I'm allowing people to develop and understanding where they want to grow and develop. So I'm really focusing on growing them. Mm. I think what's interesting as well, as you mentioned that 
do we step in when people aren't performing? And, you know, I think there's this tendency for people to think constructive is nice. And because that could be a difficult conversation, right? If someone's not performing and you're, you know, taking that on with them, that's not necessarily a comfortable conversation, but it can be a constructive conversation. And so to not take that conversation is actually the passive thing to do. Correct. Yeah. So I often, uh, we toggle between this and constructive is not a soft conversation. I concur. Do I take the time and energy and effort to show that I truly care about the person's growth and development? Oh. And I want to understand them, where are they at? I want to help them grow versus go to the oppositional lens and, or not get, they can't grow. It's all about them. And every, I need every person for themselves. I need to do something with that individual or avoid and I do nothing about it. They're not performing and just do nothing about it. The humanistic lens will be a tough conversation. First start of the conversation is around care and growth. Where are you? And then if expectations are clear, the training's clear, and the person's still not wanting to complete, they have the knowledge and skills and they still sit back and say, no, I'm not going to do it or I don't want to do it or keep digging to find out why. And ultimately, it might come down to, do they want to be part of the organization? Mm. And then that's a tougher conversation. Mm. And it's from a constructive lens, it's how do I help you be the best you can be? And how do you flourish and grow? And then ultimately, you've got to do what's best for the team and the others and the organization. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so humanistic is tough, not soft. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. I, of, I think it's often missed though. It is. And I often say to leaders to get them to this view and this lens is who cares about you the most in your life? And I'll get the standard answers. It's my partner, my family, my best mates. Uh-huh. And my follow-up question is who gives you the most direct, open, honest, and often unsolicited feedback? It's not your direct reports, I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> and it would be uh, my partner, my family, yep. my friends, my best mate. Yeah. Some people say their dog. So there you go. So people who care about you the most give you the most open, direct honest feedback. feedback. Yeah, respectfully straight. Respectfully straight. And uh, there's constructive. Sometimes it's hard. And so with the training and development as well, is it around that, you know, like the uh, promotions or selection, it's also about fairness. Is the right person getting the right training and so on? Well, and I'd say, are the opportunities for development balanced and equitable? And the thing I would say is, do they also align to what the organization needs? Yeah. It's not just a lolly scramble sort of you know, reward is, yeah, uh, yeah. serves a purpose. Yeah. So when we, and I talk to organizations about, and they say, we're having a growth and development activity. We're doing ABC as a team. And my question to them often is, how will that help the organization meet its mission and philosophy? And sometimes the answer is, well, it doesn't really. It's just to have fun. And I go, mm. great, have fun. It's important to enjoy. But also I'd follow up with, What's the development activities you need to grow the organization? Mm. What are the activities that are aligned to helping the organization perform in a more sustainable and effective manner Mm. over time? So what are the skills and capability gaps you want to grow? Mm. And how is it balanced? Mm. Okay. What's next in the the HR systems? The last piece is um, fits under this broad category of respect for members. What does that mean? And you can see that it sort of links in with selection and placement and that training and development. And it's to what degree are people treated fairly, justly, in broad terms, with regards to development opportunities, but in broad terms, to what degree do we actually treat people 
with respect. I'm interested and curious on the views of others. To what degree do I want to understand where people are coming from versus the flip that I actually don't want to understand where people are coming from. It's, I want you to roll in Monday to Friday or Monday to Sunday, Uh do your role. And I don't really want to ask you any questions. Do I make decisions at organization that uh, respect individuals' views and perspectives and we take into account some of that balanced view? So regardless of any of the diversity metric, people are all treated with respect. And we're curious about people. So one of the key things as a leader, I, I personally try and understand what motivates the individuals. I'm curious about individuals. Oh. Keep using that word curious, don't I, for 2018. Word of 2018. So we do, we, do we treat these people with dignity and respect? And it ranges from when I walk through a client site or an area, do I say hello to people? Am I genuinely interested in how are they? And I want to know how everyone is. And that genuine word's are an interesting one because I think, you know, we read the leadership training program or the HBR article or something and it's like, you know, say hi to everyone, but do you actually believe it, I guess? Because people, BS detectors are pretty strong and they uh, see through that one. The BS detectors are high. And uh, <laughs> if you're not genuine, they'll know. It reminds me of a story. I was walking a facility one day and a, a colleague of mine asked somebody, innocently, he said, how are you? Mm. And uh, continued to walk past. Right. And uh, the person, John, I'll never forget, said to uh, my colleague, whose name I won't mention, said, uh, do you really care? Or are you just asking as you're walking past? Wow. Which stopped my colleague in his tracks and went, actually, I probably shouldn't have asked the question, but now that you've pulled mm. me up, I do really care. Yeah. How are you? Yeah. And it changed him to, uh, if he's in a hurry, people observe that. Mm. So genuinely care. It's an interesting one. When I, I lived in Denmark some years ago and they um, find that question like, how are you? How's it going? Hilarious because in their culture, if you don't genuinely mean the question, you don't ask it. So they would, they never ask that question unless they're, to them, that's a half hour conversation, yes. right? Whereas to us in, in Australia and yeah. so on, it's, it's a greeting, right? How's it going? The other one with respect for members doesn't mean, you know, you should have respect for all people. And so I'm thinking, is there situations where it's about like the stripes on your shoulder that I only respect people who are general managers and above or whatever it may be in this organization. It's about your seniority level. Is that sort of the opposite of this? Yes and no. So can we table that conversation when we get to balances of power and leadership? Oh, all right. So we'll save that for a later episode. We'll, we'll save that one for uh, the very last episode. It'll be probably the last thing I touch on. And a brief little tester is, um, am I respecting leaders Mm. because of the hierarchical position they have, or am I respecting leaders because of their referent knowledge, their expertise? Right. Am I respecting the leader because I'm fearful of the leader, or I'm respecting the leader because of the person they are? Gotcha. And so just generally on respect for members, its impact on culture is what? If there's no respect for members, it's just dog-eat-dog or something? Or how does that work? Well, what you see, though, is certain people will get activities or benefits Mm. where other people won't. Mm. So people are going to be then motivated to try and fit in with the in-crowd, so to speak, so go passive, or might even be motivated to stand out. Mm. Uh, So they just won't be be seen as an environment that's equitable and balanced. Yeah, gotcha. Um, so a low respect for members is going to drive security. 
And that might play out by fitting in or standing out. But a high respect for members is going to drive. Be curious, be creative, make a difference, share opinions, share thoughts. It's okay to be different. It's okay to be me or okay to be you. I guess if there's that lack of respect for members, then it means people aren't worried about you as an individual. So I guess that's an inherently unsafe place to be, right? Because anything, (laughs) no one cares really what's going to happen. So I don't know, I feel at risk, whereas the opposite, if people have a lot of respect, then, you know, I feel more comfortable, right? And therefore I'm willing to try more things. Correct. Yeah, I'd concur with that one. Fantastic. So what's next in the HR system, Stevie? Yeah, so the next bucket of items in systems is around the appraisal and reinforcement systems. There's three metrics in here, and they are linked. We're talking about fairness of appraisals, use of rewards, and use of punishment. Okay. So in terms of fairness of appraisals, when we review performance, is it balanced based on objective criteria? So we, and the individual understands how they can succeed and perform which will lead into goal setting, which is the next piece. But are they objective rather than personal, my view and Uh, subjective criteria? uh. So when people are evaluated for a bonus, pay rise, the next position, maybe even it's just a special assignment. Uh. So when I look around and I have a special project or an opportunity to go out and work on an initiative, are people treated fairly? based on objective measures rather than subjective measures. And it's not necessarily the, the first person I walk past or the person that I always talk to. It's all done on fairness. So it's based on real measures of performance, whatever they are for the role, and not favoritism. An interesting one for me on that is I've been in teams before where there has to be kind of ranking on a grade within the team. And so it doesn't matter if the whole team performs. Everyone's an A student. It doesn't matter. Someone has to get a B. Someone has to get a C kind of thing. And vice versa. If no one's performing, well, still, someone gets an A, someone gets a B, someone gets a C. Forced ranking. Yeah. So what, what's your take on that then? Don't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the forced bell curve distribution. For those listening to our Culture Bites podcast would, would have heard the old story is the bottom 10%'s got to go. You might not have a bottom 10%. Mm. You might not have a top 10%. That's right. It's quite linear and clinical Mm. rather than being fair Mm. in terms of fairness of appraisals. So those, and we have played, it's quite interesting with some of our metrics. You've got me on a tangent now, Dom. So This is dangerous. This is very dangerous. We've played with performance ratings from organizations and correlated that back to their individual thinking Uh. as well as the uh, subunit cultures. Uh. And what we see, and this will be no surprise to our listeners today, is that the subjective measures show no correlation to constructive or passive Uh. or necessarily aggressive. They are subjective by nature. Uh. And the individuals that are getting the high ratings aren't all constructive or all passive or all aggressive. Or performing better. Or performing better. But when we look at some of the the metrics that we look at from the value outcomes in terms of customer, employee, or shareholder, we can get straight correlations between that and the cluster. But the The cluster being the... Constructive, aggressive, passive. Uh Yep. 
but we don't get that when we look at performer tradings. So I'm not saying performer tradings are bad, but I'm saying currently the evidence would say they're more subjective than objective. Mm, interesting. The on performance appraisals and that curved ranking, I mean, it, to me, it speaks of as far as how it impacts culture. If you're forcing a curved ranking where someone in the team has to be a one, someone has to be a two and so on, then naturally I'm thinking, well, if you and me are in the same team, I'm going to, I want you to do well, but not too well. I'm going to hold something back from helping you potentially because I've got to make sure I come out on top. Yeah. So those forced rankings, if they're public, uh, sometimes they're not public. Mm. If those forced rankings are public, it will drive competitive. Yeah. Probably power and probably a touch of perfectionistic in there as well. Mm. Stay on top of everything. I've got to be seen to be perfect. Yeah. Don't let anyone else. I make no mistakes. That's how I fit in and thrive or survive to keep my job. So it would certainly drive some of those more aggressive defensive tendencies. Gotcha. And so we also talked about use of rewards and use of punishment within that cluster. Yeah, correct. So we can probably talk about, they are different because sometimes you see low use of punishment, but no use of rewards. Mm. Sometimes you see no use of rewards and um, high, punishment. high use of punishment. So you, they are different. But when we talk about use of rewards, we're talking about, do I notice that effective, sustainable delivery on performance will be recognized? So those individuals that perform well, have good performance, are they recognized in some way? And use of punishment is the likelihood that mistakes will be punished. People will be singled out if they make a mistake rather than we'll use mistakes to learn from and grow. Everyone makes mistakes. I find that uh, we often learn from our mistakes a lot more than some of our success stories. But interestingly, we should also be learning from our success stories. Uh. For those projects that go well, and I challenge clients when they have a fantastic month on performance or a fantastic project that closes, why did it go so well? Mm. We will generally do the review on the things that go so well, but it should be on both. I remember a boss of mine back years ago talking about how, you know, as a, as a company, we would launch all these projects and there'd always be a lot of communication when you launch a project, but hardly ever anything when you close it because it's more, it's a softer close kind of. Yeah. And so he made a special point of let's, you know, have an afternoon tea, let's get some cakes and whatever, just to, I guess, show to people that actually we do finish these things, we do close and we do celebrate it because it was successful. And it was an interesting point that it stood out to me because no one had done that before. And so I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's important to uh, look at those things and celebrate. And it, that's why the causal factors we're talking about all do link. A key component of that service focus we talked earlier, that customer service focus, is that celebration and mm. do we openly celebrate as a full team? Mm. But now you look at individually, do I get recognized by my immediate leader for my contribution? Does my leader actually notice when I do a good job? Mm. We'll talk about job design in the next episode around, do I recognize when I do a good job from the job? But does my leader actually recognize when I do a good job? Or nothing happens. Right. I do my job and nothing happens. So whether I do it, Average or do it outstanding nothing. doesn't really make a difference. Yeah, nothing happens. So no no guess, one notices. So I'm guessing I'm not particularly motivated to do it outstandingly, at least by this, by the manager or something. Yeah, the manager hasn't noticed my good work. And it's how often does the manager come up and say, where are you at? How's it going? I've seen you've done this. Well done. 
that recognition through use of rewards, what's the MasterCard ad? Priceless. Right. The uh, plug for MasterCard. And, and I guess speaking of priceless, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bonus or cash or whatever, does it? Correct. 100%. Everyone would like more money. Not, maybe not everybody. I wouldn't mind, DB. <laughs> so we're in the work when we're with organizations that looking at culture, it can be a never-ending spiral. It's the recognition. It's the acknowledgement that you're doing a good job and you're growing and you're getting the development opportunities, which links back into training and development. Mm. So this whole use of rewards is this, does my supervisor, does my immediate manager know me, know what I'm doing and recognize my good performance? So it's really, I guess, the the fundamental belief that's kind of fueling is my effort makes a difference. Correct. Right? Which is right in achievement. 100%. Kind of territory. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Could not have said that better myself. The, Thank you. Thank you for that uh, yeah. recognition. <laughs> yeah. Good use of reward. That's right. The use of punishment on the uh, other hand is that if I'm not performing as well, my immediate manager will actually make it visible. Bring it to life mm. in front of everybody. And it could be through negative stories versus the use of rewards would be those positive stories. Mm-hmm. So the negative stories come out. They might not give me the, the task or the role for variety. They might limit the opportunities I get for training and development. They actually won't even help me correct the problem, potentially. Right. So you get punished, but no yeah, support. No support. It's like, yes, this is not good enough. You're not on the right page. So whereas use of awards is noticing when I'm doing well and actively recognizing and being with me and knowing, use of punishment is almost not helping me or actively giving me, not giving me opportunities, taking away opportunities Mm. or criticizing Mm. me. So there are two drivers. So if the organization's high in uh, use of punishment, what we're going to see is people probably going to avoidance. How do I stay relatively invisible, avoid conflict, avoid making the wrong decision, doing what I'm told to do, complying, fitting in, or fight like anything to stand out, take control? Mm. I think almost of those uh, like psychology 101 with the mouse and the, the maze and it pushes the button and it doesn't know if it's going to get a pellet of food or an electric shock kind of thing. And, you know, it's like if you only had buttons that were only electric shocks, well, <laughs> it's going to crawl up into a ball or something pretty soon. Correct. There's actually a, um, around use of rewards, there's actually a clip on YouTube with capuchin monkeys. If people wanted to search. I'll put it on the uh, page for this podcast. You'll put it on the page and people see it. So these capuchin monkeys have a look at the clip and sometimes uh, it's people see, people know it's, it doesn't have to be said or written. People can see use of rewards and use of punishment through some unwritten symbols and meanings. Have a look at the video clip of the capuchin monkeys and you'll see that with that experiment. Fantastic. Probably leads us to goal setting. Goal setting, absolutely. So tell me about that, DB. So goal setting uh, is the area in which we're creating systems to allow members to have goals, design the goals that are positive, motivating, and reinforcing. Uh That's what we're doing. So Specifically, what we're looking at here is how clear are the goals and what we look at is are they clear or ambiguous? It's pretty straightforward. 
do individuals know how they can succeed? Do they know how they can actually perform well in the role? Are the goals challenging versus too easy or too hard? Do we jointly set the goals? And finally, do the members, employees accept the goals? Mm. So if we look at that goal clarity one, it's pretty straightforward. How measurable are they and how clear are they? Right. Are they just vague? We're going to climb a mountain. Really? Right. Which one? <laughs> right. Correct. Or on the weekend, we're going hiking and we'll be climbing a mountain in the, the Katoomba region. Mm-hmm. So it's moderately clear, but do you still know... Hey, no. is it a one hour walk? Is it a 10 hour walk? Yeah. Is it a five day hike? We don't know. Correct. So, so the goal we got for the weekend is actually to, uh, head out to, uh, Katoomba, climb the three sisters and do a two and a half, three hour walk and get some exercise and get us up to, uh, probably 10 to 15 K walk. Huh. So it's, what's the clarity of the goal? Are they clear? I often understand that people st- Set moderately clear goals, and this is where the whole smart thing can come in. My challenge would be that they might be clear in your mind, and you're saying they're clear and specific, but they're only moderately clear in the recipient's mind. Uh. So what I say is, ask the people to play back to you what a great day looks like. So that will give you an understanding of how clear they are. Uh. Are they on the same page? And do you think that to get it really clear, there has to be that element of why behind it. So you can tell someone we need to increase sales or we need to do this thing, but it's the why sometimes is the key. 100%. Understanding. And and you're hitting on a couple of other causal factors there as well because we're actually hitting back into the articulation of our mission and why we exist. And in terms of job design, you're hitting in significance Uh and the importance of my personal role. But if you can articulate, and this is why, I'll go back to my point a little bit earlier, is there are 31 causal factors or drivers for change that we're looking at that are interlinked. Mm. At its core, this one talks about being clear and specific, but understanding the why will actually support and build some other levers at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess with that goal clarity, I'm going to guess if if we're not clear on the goal, then I don't know which way to head. And so I'm going to go into that passive kind of zone. I could wait for direction or uh, just avoid and do nothing. Yeah. So I could be dependent on avoidance or I could feel I need to take control and stand out um, yeah. and head towards that aggressive zone. The thing I would say is low clarity is going to lead you to more security orientation yeah. than satisfaction orientation. Yeah. Gotcha. So if I know how I can win and achieve, it's certainly going to allow me to help me understand how I can make a difference. Yeah. Right. And um, that's the achievement kind of orientation. And then allow me to grow and flourish in making that difference. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if that's goal clarity, then the next you talked about was challenge. Correct. It's all around the difficulty piece. Similar to goal clarity, this is pretty straightforward. I sometimes refer to this as uh, Goldilocks and the three bears. Okay, why is that? So are the goals too easy, just right, fairly challenging, or too difficult? Uh And we want to get this balance in here. So we want goals that are fairly challenging, but not too difficult. And this is where some assessment needs to come in based on both the leaders and the employees' members. Uh. What's their view on the goal? From a motivation point of view, if we feel that uh, the goal, we've never done it before to stretch, I can see no plan to get me there, 
it's probably going to be classified as too difficult mm. and therefore it's going to be demotivating mm. and therefore it's going to drive into security orientation mm. rather than a constructive orientation. Especially if I think I'm going to be appraised on it later. I'm going to be appraised on it and I might fail. I'm going to do things. And this is the interesting thing around our competitive lens. In some respects, our competitive culture will only take on tasks they know they can win at. Mm. So set low goals because you'll have to smash win. them. Yep. I have to win. So the opposite of too difficult is obviously too easy. Mm. Oh, there's no challenge to that. I'm not actually feeling that I have to put my effort in so I can just sit back and relax. Um, I can rest. There's no, there's no right. drive to achieve the goals. Very demotivating. Yeah. It's like, what's the point? Yep. Right? I don't get the goal. And so I guess that's building the, the passive kind of unplug my brain. Yeah. Yep. Leave, leave my brain at the door. And the goal is obviously to have fairly challenging goals. So I now want goals that are, are stretching in nature. I have a clear path to achieve the goals. And I know that achieving these goals is going to be better for the greater good of the organization. So back to Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, just right. Yeah. And the just right is the assessment piece. Nice. And I've got to talk to the peoples. And it leads me nicely to uh, participative goal setting. Okay. Tell uh, me about that. Well, how do I know they're just right? They're, mm. they're fairly challenging is with this joint approach to goal setting. So I could set the goals as the leader. I could ask the employees to purely set the goals or they could be jointly set. So our goal is to get the goals jointly set. And then that allows me to make the assessment. Are they clear and specific? B, are they fairly challenging? Just right. Otherwise, I don't know. So how do we actually go about setting goals? What are the practices and process we use around participative goal setting? So that one, again, is pretty straightforward. Is that with participative goal setting? Because I've seen, you know, maybe it's the cold, you know, this shapes the culture, but the culture also shapes your approach to this one. And I've seen organizations where, you know, people go in basically to try and get the goals as low as possible so they can smash them, right? Because it's a competitive thing. I'm going to get rated on the curb or whatever, so I'm going to get it as low as possible. And kind of like a lawyer, I'm going to argue it down, you know? And so is that that kind of cycle that it goes back and forward between the two? I would say yes. The thought I've got going on my mind is, uh, are you in charge of your culture or is your culture in charge of you? Mm. If your culture is in charge of you and it's to be aggressive and win and win at all cost, you're going to drive, how can I stand out? So how can I take a goal that's going to be stand out and significant and seen in shining lights and control, control everything? If my culture is passive, it's going to be, well, I'll do when you tell me what I need to do and the policies and procedures are around our goals are A, mm. B, and C. Mm. But I'll, I'll go along with you. Mm. But don't ask me to make the decision. And I guess this is another one, again, that it's got to be in context of all the causal factors, because I can see a case where, you know, a self-set goal could be, if, it was, if you're higher on achievement, you could do that, right? Possibly, but it depends on the context, I guess, in which it's in. Correct. Correct. It's the broader context. Um, if you go purely for the self-set goals, which are great, because you want them jointly set, because you want people to contribute to their goals. Yes. And that's what... When we talk about participative, we want them to be involved in their goal setting, mm. which links me back into empowering people and involving people yep. and linking to our broader purpose. But if I'm not clear on why we exist and have self-set goals, 
how do I be sure that we're all heading in the same direction? And I haven't got somebody going out to the left when everyone else is going out to the right. Gotcha. And making we, sure that they're the right challenge level yeah. too. Yeah. We're going to go climb that mountain, but somebody's gone down to Victoria to climb the mountain and everyone else has gone out to uh, Katoomba. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. So if that's participative goal setting, what's the last one? The last one's all around goal acceptance. And it is as it sounds. It's to what degree, uh, to what extent are the goals fully accepted versus they are only marginally accepted or rejected? Mm. Do people believe that the, yep, I accept, accept the goals. I'm on board. Now, the more people are on board with the goals, the more they're going to be excited by making that difference to drive that achievement lens. The more they'll be excited to be curious about how they can do it differently the more excited they'll be about to collaborate and cooperate with others to achieve the goals. Mm. And so with goal acceptance, well, with goals in general, I've seen funny cases where it was participative goal setting, or at least, you know, we ticked the box on doing it together. I accept it, but I'm not clear on what the hell it is. So it makes me wonder, well, did you really participate in it? Did you really accept it if you don't know what it is? Yes. Your culture was probably dependent and avoidance, and you've nodded and said yes. But you haven't really. Yeah, not truly. Yeah, not truly accepted the goals. So you're living in, probably living in the passive defensive area. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, DB. Well, I think that was a great overview of the HR systems and how they impact culture. Quick just recap of them. So we talked about selection and placement. Does the right person get the right job? What kind of messages are we sending with who we promote? Training and development, similar kind of thing. Are the right people getting the right training? Do I have the training I need to succeed? Respect for members. So, you know, do we respect the individual or is it, you know, politics? It's all about who you know and that kind of stuff. Appraisals. So are appraisals fair? Are they based on objective measures? What gets rewarded? What gets punished? What kind of message does that do we send by what we reward and punish? And then finally was around goals. So are they clear? Are they the Goldilocks zone, are they the right amount of challenge where we're stretched, but not impossible? Do we set them together with our manager and do we ultimately accept them? On the money, Dom. Thanks, DB. Thanks, thanks, for, your, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. It's great to be here in Sydney on a cold winter's day. Fantastic. So next episode, we're going to look at job design. So stay tuned for that. today's episode of Culture Bites, we talked about the How Culture Works model. The How Culture Works model is from the Organizational Culture Inventory and Organizational Effectiveness Inventory. The feedback report for these surveys and other culture change resources are copyrighted by Human Synergistics International. Research and development by Robert A. Cook and J. Clayton Lafferty. All rights reserved. Please contact us if you would like to review any of these resources for organizational change and development.